I'd like for you to pray for the preacher this morning. I hope you do that every Sunday. (laughs) We're reading passages about the Holy Spirit this fall, and the Holy Spirit is simply a particularly difficult part of Scripture to get a hold of. We talk about God the Father, and we can point to creation and talk about the power of God, and we've just got examples right out the window. We talk about Jesus the Son, and we have all the gospel stories and the parables, and we can picture Jesus on the roads of Galilee. But then there comes this Spirit, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This invisible presence that is as invisible as the breath we breathe and yet as essential as the breath we breathe. In Romans chapter 8, there is this lengthy and fairly complicated chapter in which Paul talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. We're going to read two short parts from Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, God condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba. Father, it is that very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is now no condemnation, no blame for those who are in Christ Jesus. While I was studying this passage this week, I remembered a scene from a movie from many years ago. The movie is called Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, and it's the story of Francis of Assisi. You remember that Francis was the son of a wealthy merchant there in northern Italy, and Francis, as a young man, went off to war, which is what young men did, and in a battle with the city-state of Venice, he's taken prisoner ends up in a dungeon. And there in the dungeon, he has this powerful experience of the love of God and the living presence of Christ. And he comes out of that prison changed. And for the rest of his life, he seeks in an incredibly simple way to follow Jesus. Well, in the movie, there is this scene where 
the monk from up in the north has been ordered to come to Rome to meet the Pope because people are talking about this Francis and some people are actually beginning to go and follow Francis. The Pope wants to check this out. And in this scene, Francis comes into this incredible, glorious room in St. Peter's with paintings everywhere and gold and silver and bright lights and glitter. And Francis is in this beat-up old robe that's sort of moth-eaten and and dirty at the elbows. He's got a piece of rope for a belt. He's barefoot. And he comes into St. Peter's Cathedral with a few of his followers. And there on the throne, there's no other way to describe it, on the throne sits the Pope, the most powerful man in the church, the most powerful leader in all of Europe. And the Pope is sitting on the throne under this huge gold cape that seems to weigh a ton. And he's sitting there, and his eyes are glazed over. He's been sitting all day listening to people come in and beg him for things, and he blesses them, and they go their way. And next to the Pope are these incredibly self-important bishops because they are guarding the most important man in Europe. And Francis and the brothers come in, and they kneel before the Pope. And the Pope stands up. And you can tell from the bishops around him, the Pope doesn't stand up for anybody. The Pope stands up and he shuffles off this great heavy cape and he walks over and he takes Francis by the hand and lifts him up. And they begin to talk softly and Francis begins to tell the Pope about his life of simplicity, of loving God and being grateful for all the beauty of creation and their work with the lepers and the beggars and tell them the stories of Jesus wherever they go. And as Francis talks, the Pope's face lights up. His eyes shine. His face is bright. He has this beautiful smile on his face as he listens to Francis and sort of pats his hand. Well, after a few minutes, the bishops come and they physically take the Pope and they pull him back to his seat and they put this great big robe back on him and as he sits down all the life goes out of his face and as Francis leaves the Pope is sitting there like death warmed over that scene came to me as I was studying this passage about the work of the spirit and the way the spirit sets us free to breathe to live to be glad about all that God is doing. Romans chapter 8. It's one of the most glorious passages in the New Testament, and it comes right in the middle of this lengthy and difficult letter to the Romans, written by Paul to Christians over there in Italy, in Rome. Christians who were raised as Jews and are now followers of the Messiah, Jesus. And Paul is simultaneously trying to explain himself a former Pharisee who used to struggle to keep all the rules and the regulations, that he has now become a missionary to the Gentiles, to the great unwashed, to all those heathen. And the believers in Rome are just a little suspicious about what Paul is up to. And Paul is trying to explain the glorious good news that he has come to believe that God is for us and not against us. 
that there is this incredible gift in Jesus that no rule or law or bargain can equal. Paul is trying to get his readers to loosen up and live and quit keeping score on everybody else. Someone has described Presbyterians as people who are worried that somebody else is having fun somewhere. (laughs) Paul wants them to be joyful and not anxious, to be grateful for what God is doing and not uptight that somebody else may not be doing right. Romans 8, right in the middle of this long discussion about God's work in Jesus Christ, Paul sums up the mysterious work of the Spirit, the Spirit at life at work in our dying bodies, the Spirit of freedom at work against our chained to selfishness. The heart of sin in Scripture is that we really want the world to revolve around us. The heart of sin is that we really want to be the one on the throne, the one in charge, and the one who calls the shots. And we're just not really sure we want anybody else doing that, even the Almighty. Paul says the Holy Spirit has come to breathe life in us, to help us put down the anxiety that things are not going the way we want. And if you back up into chapter 7, there is this moment of confession. There is this psychology of Paul in the first century. He describes his own experience. He says, every time I try to do things right, every time I get things lined up and exactly know what my to-do list, something falls through. Something is out of my control. Something messes up. And there I am a slave to sin, captured by my own mistakes. No matter how hard I try to do good, something bad will happen. Woe is me, who will save me from this body of death? That's what chapter 7 says. And then Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation. There is now no judgment. There is no punishment, no fine, no penalty, no probation period for those who are leaning on Jesus. There is no measuring up to the gospel of God's love. This comes as what we call gospel, an announcement. A drowning person does not decide to save himself. A drowning person calls out and hopes the lifeguard is watching. A slave does not wake up one morning and say, I'm tired of this slavery stuff. I think I will set myself free today. No, the slave waits for someone else to announce and enforce the Emancipation Proclamation. A person who is dead does not say, I've had enough of this. I think I will get up. He or she waits for resurrection. Paul says there is another who is doing just this. The work of God's Holy Spirit comes to make us alive where we were dead, free where we were enslaved, adopted into a family where we were caught in our aloneness. The Bible is not a self-help book. 
The Christian religion is not a do-it-yourself religion to clean up your act so that when finally we stand before the living God, we can show God a list of the good we did and sort of prove that God made a good decision to let us in. It is not a self-help book. It is the announcement of this incredible mystery that God has decided in Jesus to make us welcome, to make us alive, to let us breathe. Last week I asked you to think back. I asked you to remember that time when Jesus became real to you. I asked you to remember that time when Jesus went from being a character in stories that were told to being a living relationship in your own life, a living experience. As you call that memory up, I'm guessing that there are people who loved you and people who talked with you and people who showed you by their welcome that you mattered. It may have happened in a youth group, perhaps at a church camp where Jesus moved from being a story to being a living presence. Maybe it was in a Bible study, a small group Bible study in your dorm or in your neighborhood. Perhaps you were sitting in a sanctuary, just showing up like you were used to doing. People around you singing, reading. And there came this moment of awe, this moment of living breath. Like someone in a dark room who turned a light on for you. Like someone in a locked room who opened the door for you. Jesus comes in his mercy to find us. This is not about us getting our act together, but about breathing in the gift, the breath. Bishop Irenaeus in the second century A.D. said, A person fully alive is the glory of God. A person fully alive glorifies God. There are two reasons we're reading these Holy Spirit passages this fall. The first reason we're studying the work of the Spirit is so that we may be more open, more available, more grateful for the help that God gives us day by day. That we may be more ready for the surprises of those moments when we can breathe in and know that God is putting life into this that just feels like it is being worn down. Paul calls it this body of death, this body of futility. Think of all the phrases that we have to describe futility. First you struggle, then you die. Two things are certain, death and taxes. Even Solomon way back in Ecclesiastes, Solomon the most powerful man in the kingdom says, you know, the lion, king of the beasts, and the dog have the same end. They die. We're reading about the Holy Spirit that we may be more open to the life-giving presence that it is work among us. There is now no condemnation, no blame for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has decided to be for us. And what I want us to do is to be more aware of those moments in our days when there is a surprising moment of life, of, of deep breathing. Anxiety is this 
experience of being tight, of not being able to get a deep breath, of sweaty hands and clenched fists. And life is this experience of breathing and trusting and leaning on the everlasting arms and knowing that God is there and God is not going to let us fall. Moments of being truly alive. I'm not talking about distraction. There's an incredible industry for distraction in, uh, to deal with anxiety. I mean, there are all these devices that we have in our hands and on our tablets and on the television. You know, for a while we can be distracted by somebody else's story or somebody else's pictures or somebody else's game. And one of the clues to the fact that it's a distraction is that when you finish and close it up, the anxiety is still there. You just turned away for a little bit. The experience that brings life to us makes us feel a little more full, a little more grounded, a little more trusting that we are not on our own and we are not forgotten. We're reading about these passages of the Spirit that we may be more open to the moments that God is there for us. The second reason we're reading about the Spirit this fall is that we're in a time of major transformation in the life of this congregation. Transform FPC through small group meetings and team meetings, through praying and planning sessions. We seek as a congregation to be more available, more open, more grateful for God's life-giving Spirit. To be more generous with the life that God has given us It's sad that we Presbyterians too often are known for being people of rules and regulations and policy instead of being known as joyful, spirit-filled believers. My prayer is that by reading these passages week by week and by asking for this spirit to make our ministry alive and lively, that God will answer that prayer like that Pope in the movie scene. I want us to stand up and to shed the the heavy robe of routine and regulation and boredom and to breathe in the life-giving presence and the joy of following Jesus, to be more alive. We are here for the love of God. We are here because of the welcome of Jesus. You're here due to the life and the liveliness of the Spirit. People who are fully alive, they are the glory and the joy of God. Let us be those people. Thanks be to God.